speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you at once what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit and behold a throne in heaven with one seated on the throne. Let us pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would you would increase our vision. You would give us a grand and glorious vision of Jesus. I pray that you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would make those who are mute to sing for joy. I pray for myself that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. May we become more like Jesus as a result of what we hear and see even today. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. You know, I became a Christian right before I went into the Army in 1988. Went into the Army for four years, and then after I went to a small school in uh, the southeast called Florida State. And one thing I loved about being at Florida State... It's one of the reasons I got out of the army is I wanted I, I thought I needed to learn how to tell people about Jesus and so I went to Florida State and and did everything I could to learn that but one of the things that I had the most fun with at a big school like Florida State is when you go to the student union when people come and try to tell you about Jesus in other words people would come up to me and say would you would you like to talk about Jesus with me today and I would always go sure and I wouldn't tell them I was a Christian I'd say sure and I, was, I wanted to see what they were going to do. And the, the thing that I remember years ago, the, the thing that I never could get my head around is someone one time showed me a, like a pamphlet and it had an empty chair on it. And the guy said, who's sitting on the throne of your life? And I said, I don't know. Who should be? And he said, well, it's, it's either Jesus or it's you. I said, Really? And we conversed, and then finally he said, would you like Jesus to sit on the throne of your life? And I said, I would. And he was so happy. I said, I, of course, I made that decision like four years ago. And he was pretty disappointed that he wasted his time, so to speak, with me. But that always bothered me because, you know, as we looked at last week's uh, text, we looked at Revelation 4, that's sort of a, a, the wrong question. You see, the question isn't, who's on the throne of your life? Is it Jesus or is it you? As we looked at chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, there's no question that that Jesus, God himself, is on the throne. The question is whether or not you're going to acknowledge that. In in other words, it's not whether he's there or you're there. He is always there. That's what we looked at last week. That John had 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 these three letters dictated to him by Jesus to these churches, and frankly, it's probably a little bit depressing. And at the end, to encourage him, to encourage us, Jesus says, come up here. Basically, I want you to see something. And what does John see? He says, I came in the Spirit and I appeared in heaven and appeared before me a throne and one sitting on it. So what we learned last week is that there is one who sits on the throne always. And what our job is to do is not to, to, to either sit there or not sit there or let him or not. The question is, are we going to acknowledge the fact that he always sits there? It's just a fact. And so as we come to this week, Revelation, you see, Revelation, this has been a hard week, a couple weeks, because Revelation 4 and 5 go together. I mean, they're sort of like peanut butter and jelly, and they're hard to separate. And when you separate them, it makes it more difficult to teach. And so I either had to separate them, or we had to do like 
about an 80-minute sermon. I don't think any of you wanted that. So we split, well, I split up chapter 4 from 5, and this week I realized I had to split chapter 5 even. And so this morning we're going to only look at half of chapter 5. But before we do, there's a couple things we need to do, and basically that's to define some terms. Because as you get into the book of Revelation, there are two terms that really are important, especially in chapters 4 and 5. The first term is this term called, the, the, called sovereignty or sovereign. You'll hear someone say that God is sovereign or God is the sovereign or God is a sovereign. On one hand, people tend to use that word uh, synonymously with uh, providence. Right? What is God's providence? It's God's governing all his creatures and all their actions. Sovereignty is actually more personal. Sovereignty has to do with kingship or being the Lord. If you ever hear someone in church say the Lord said this or the Lord said that, well, what they're saying is that the king said this. And so when you say that God is sovereign, what you're saying is that he is king of everything. And that has to do with his rule. And when I say rule, I mean rule. He, he makes the rules. But he doesn't just make the rules. He has the authority to make the rules. That's what it means for him to be sovereign. But even more than that, he not only makes the rules, he not only has the authority to, to, to make the rules, but he actually has the power to enforce the rules. And not just the rules in the Ten Commandments. I mean the rules of everything. The laws of nature, the laws of physics, everything that is, he is behind and governing at all times. God is sovereign over all things. And that is not just a detached theological term. It really has to do with his kingship. And so when you see God on a throne, what we saw last week is that God is sovereign over all things. And the other term that's important to know in the book of Revelation. It's important in the whole Bible, both of these are, but it's the term uh, redemption. What do we mean when we talk about redemption? Basically, redemption has to do with deliverance. Deliverance from sin. In the Old Testament, it might have been deliverance from the land of Egypt or deliverance from the land of, of Babylon. It also has to do with atonement, with the forgiveness of sins, with someone paying your bill. It's used in that sense. And it's also used to, to, with regard to repurchasing something that was once lost. In other words, you, you owned something and then you sold it and, and then you had to buy it back or you lost it and you had to buy it back. And so what's interesting, in chapter 4, basically you see the sovereignty of God on the throne. And in chapter 5, what we're going to look at is the redemption of God around the throne. In other words, in chapter 1, a different way to slice in chapter 4, you see the sovereignty of God in creation. Remember, everything there was about sort of what happened in the Old Testament. And in the chapter 5, what we're going to see is the sovereignty of God in redemption or in the New Testament. So that's another way to split it. And so as we jump in today, there's basically three things we're going to look at. We're going to look at, uh, I'm going to go through verse by verse, but you could split this up into basically three points. A liturgical question is one. Number two is a tearful response, and number three is a surprising vision. So a liturgical question, a tearful response, and a surprising vision. If you were here at the very beginning, when, when I did the first introductory sermons, the first two, you remember I told you that this chapter, what we're going to look at today, is the center of the whole book of Revelation. So I hope that becomes clear as we go along. So the first thing we say is a liturgical question. And in verse 1, John says, Then, he's, he's already in heaven, Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. 
So on one hand, what's going on here is in apocalyptic literature, what would happen is the, the prophet would get a scroll and it would be dictated to him by God and it would be sealed up. And whenever the seals were broken, that's when you knew things were going to start happening. And so a part of that is what's going on here. So this scroll is in the right hand of him who sits on the throne. That's God the Father. And scrolls in those days would have been about 10 meters long, probably written on one side. And yet this one is written on both sides for some reason. And so the question is, one question is, what, what's in the scroll? If you've ever read the book of Revelation, did you ever ask that? There's lots of opinions. Of course, I'm going to give you the right one today. Um, a lot of folks think it's the Old Testament. That what God is doing is basically handing over to Jesus as, as the new covenant is, is being inaugurated, that Jesus is getting ready to put everything into action. God's basically handing him the old covenant and saying, you have fulfilled this, it's yours, get moving. That's one way to look at it. And Jesus is, by the way, the fulfiller of the law and the prophets. So there is some truth to that. So is that it? I don't think only that. The other thing is that it could be, it looks an awful lot like what the Roman Empire would use for a will or a contract. In other words, a will would often be recorded on a scroll and sealed with seven seals, and it would be written on the back with the summary of what was in that will. And the only person who could open the will was the executor of the will, the person who, who was able to make it happen. And so who, who is the will for? Well, some people think it's, it's, it basically is a record of all the promises made to the people of God. That, that it's their inheritance, if you will, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Also, it could be a contract. Romans did the same thing with contracts. And it might be a contract that, would, that has the covenant of redemption where the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit agreed to deliver God's people. I think it's actually simpler than that especially if you read it from the, the rest of the text. Basically, I think at the end of the day, it's what the best answer is that it's God's plan of redemption. Past, present, and future. If you remember, the theme of the book of Revelation is that God, Jesus has won, Jesus is winning, and Jesus will win. And so basically what happens is, remember when John came up, I'm getting a lot of echo, by the way, that um, when Jesus came, and um, let me reboot that. So it's God's plan of redemption. Basically, what, when Jesus has won, is winning, and will win in the future, that when we look at the book of Revelation, what we see is the completed work of Jesus on one hand. On the other hand, we see the work of Jesus that will be completed, and the fact that he is winning now, and what is in the scroll probably is the things that are to come. That's what God, the angel told him. Come and I must show you the things that are to come. And immediately after this, in chapter 6, the seals are breaking and literally all hell and heaven begins to break loose. Okay? So what is in the scroll? I think, personally, it's the plan of redemption. What's more important, I think, is the question that comes next. John says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now this question is two things, I think. It, we know for sure it's a question of execution, but it's also a question of liturgy. Now why do I say it's a question of execution? Because when the angel stands up and he says, who is worthy to open the scroll and to look into it um, and break the seals, what he's asking is not only who's able to open it, 
What's implicit in that question is who's willing to open it because the person who opens it is also willing to execute the plan that's found within. So the question isn't just who can read this, who can open the seals. The question is who can open it ultimately and execute the plan that's found within. Who is able to do that? And it's also a liturgical question, I think. What do I mean by that? That when we talk about liturgy, liturgy is a form of worship. And we looked at last week that whenever we join together as worship, we join a service that's already in progress. And I think what's going on here is that John has happened into a heavenly worship service. Did you notice the angel didn't ask a question, really? It doesn't say, and I saw a mighty angel asking with a loud voice, who is worthy? The angel proclaims with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. In other words, I think the angel is leading worship to some extent, and he's just saying who is worthy. The angels know. All of heaven knows the answer to that question. But in this moment, the angel says who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals, and John happens to be there. And in this particular moment, heaven is not particularly outwardly faced. They don't explain what's going on. And John, I guess, thinks that he needs to answer that question, and so he sets about to answer it. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break the seals? And what he finds disturbs him. You see his tearful response in verse 3. He says, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So if this is the plan of redemption, or even if this is a contract or a will that that, that unravels the, the promises of God, John says, I look everywhere, in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and that's that, that threefold uh, way of saying things is on one hand, it's a way of saying all of creation, but on the other hand, when you start breaking it down, when John looked around in heaven, who is in heaven at this point? the four living creatures, the 24 elders, myriad upon myriad of angels. All of these things are around him. And John looks at all the great and mighty heavenly creatures and which of them is worthy to execute God's plan of redemption? Not one. Zero. How about on the earth, those who are alive right now, either during John's time or even now? Is Caesar, the emperor, able to execute God's plan of redemption? Is the best of all humanity able to execute God's plan of redemption? Who among us is worthy to execute God's plan of redemption? Who among us is worthy to stand up and say, I'm the one, I can do it, I am perfect and I am sinless, not one living person? Maybe the most even disturbing thing to John, those under the ground, those under the earth, is is a euphemism, it's a way to say those who have died. And who do John know that has died? Think about the whole Old Testament and just ask the question, who is worthy? Adam? Not. How about Noah? Noah was a good man, wasn't he? He found favor with God, but he wasn't worthy. How about Moses? Moses, maybe? Nope. How about anyone besides Moses? Gideon? Samson? One of the judges? No. How about David? No. Samuel? No. Elijah? No. Elisha, no. Isaiah, no. Daniel, no. Jeremiah, no. No, 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 no. Not one is worthy. And if you're John and you think, I've got to find from among this pool all of heaven, on earth, and under the earth, find one who is worthy, he looks around, he can't find any. And if that's where you find yourself, it leads only to one place. 
And that's what happens with John next. Verse 4, he says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And the place that it leads is despair. In other words, if you're feeling in need of redemption, if you're feeling in need of someone who can take away the guilt of your sins, if you're feeling in need of understanding how it is that God is in control of your life from first to last, and you try and find that person in heaven or under the earth or on the earth, you will fail every time and it will ultimately lead to despair. Have you ever despaired? I have. I do all the time. And almost every time, it's because I'm making the same mistake that John is making here. And that ought to give you a little bit of hope. Because if anyone should have known the answer, it would have been John. He wrote a gospel. He wrote three letters, and he's being dictated to. And when the question is asked, who is worthy, in that moment where he is caught up and he looks around and he sees no one, he weeps loudly because no one is worthy. And the problem is that John is looking in every place but the only place that can do him any good. And that's to the throne. Because at the throne is not just God, but there's someone else there. And all the problems that you and I have, if you despair, you feel like down, you feel like you can't pull yourself out, ask yourself, am I looking in the wrong place for the answers? Am I looking to other people? Am I looking to to sort of self-help literature? Am I looking to myself? I can just pull myself up by the bootstraps. If that's where you are, you will ultimately find yourself in despair. What happens next? In verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the word there literally is look, with an exclamation point. Weep no more. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. This is another little piece of evidence, I think, that leads at least me to believe that this is a worship service. John is weeping. Someone's leading worship. He doesn't know what's going on. And one of the elders, everything doesn't stop because John doesn't know what's going on. One of the elders leans down, I imagine, and says, look, you're looking in the wrong place. Look right over there. Now, before he looks, he gets a description, and that's something you need to get to. When you're going to see over and over again in the book of Revelation that John often hears one thing and sees another. Like later on, he's going to say, I heard 144,000 people, and I looked and saw an infinite number. Well, here, he's going to hear Lion of Judah, and when he looks, he's going to actually see something different. But it's that what he hears that sets his expectation. And by the way, I, didn't, I don't put pictures a lot of times here because uh, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to, to use our imaginations to, to grapple with John's description of things. And so the first thing he says is, I saw the lion from the tribe of Judah. And that comes from Genesis chapter 49. That's when the, Jacob is telling all the different, his sons, what, what role they will play in the future of Israel. And verse 8 of chapter 49, he says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And then Isaiah 11 is where you hear about the stump of Jesse. And he says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his root shall bear fruit, 
And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Verse 12 says, He will raise a signal for the nations and he will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah and from the four corners of the earth. And so what's the point here? The elders saying, The lion from the tribe of Judah has conquered. What, what, John, what would John expect to see? The image is militaristic. The stump from the root of Jesse, that of course was, is David. And remember, we've looked at the book of Samuel, that what Israel needs, what we need, is a king like David who can come and conquer our sins. And he says that king like David, he is there. And the lion from the tribe of Judah is there. And the image is one of a king who has conquered. And the image is one of a lion who has not just conquered, but has crushed his prey, and there is blood on his mouth. That is who the elder says, the lion from the tribe of Judah is there. Look at him. And so John, what does he do? What would you do? He looks. He looks to see the lion who has conquered. And what instead does he see? A surprising vision. Verse 6. He says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So he looks around expecting to see the lion from the tribe of Judah who has conquered, and instead what he sees is a lamb as if it had been slain. Well, the first thing he sees when he sees that lamb is he actually sees the biggest paradox of the gospel, but he also sees the way the lamb conquered, or the way the lion conquered. In other words, the lion conquers by becoming a lamb. The lion conquers by becoming a lamb. But the shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. In other words, why, why did the lion become a, a lamb in order to conquer? Three things I put down here. He says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. For one, the, the lion became a lamb because of us. It was because of this thing called sin. Someone had to pay for it. And because of our sin, the lion becomes a lamb. And this imagery, by the way, is both from Exodus. Remember the book of Exodus? When Passover happened, they said, kill the lamb and put the blood over the doorposts. And whenever I see the blood, I will pass over but also from Isaiah 53, when it talks about Messiah, it says what? It says that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And so why did the lamb come before? He came because of us. He also came for us. He came to purchase us. He came to redeem us. But the most important one, the biggest one, at least in my mind, is that the lamb was slain instead of us. In other words, remember, I'm constantly drilling it in, into our head, corporate head that Jesus lived the life we should have lived. And then he died the death we should have died. In other words, he was our substitute. And so the reason the lamb was slain was he was slain instead of us, that you and I deserve to be slain. What we needed was a Savior, not who would just come like a mighty lion and start slashing everyone who deserved justice, because if he did that, you and I would not survive. Instead, what we needed was a lamb who became one of us and died instead of us. And that is what Jesus has done. And so the central paradox of the gospel, how does Jesus conquer? How does he win? Jesus wins by losing. How does he gain our lives? He gains our lives by dying. Now the irony is, is, is 
that paradox is what up, up turned the world, the evil world around him. It, it, it undid the plan of Satan, and it undoes the plan of evil right now. If you've ever seen the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or read it, remember how happy the forces of evil are when Aslan is on the stone table? They just think they've won everything. They shave him, and they mock him, and they kill him. But how, how surprised they are when he comes back from the dead. And here John sees this lamb who had been slain. And did you notice how he's described? It says he has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Horns have to do with power. Eyes have to do with seeing things, either wisdom or omniscience. And so this lamb, on one hand, and they're both seven, which means complete number. This lamb, although he is one who is slain, he's also completely powerful. In other words, he didn't go to the cross because he was weak. He went to the cross because he was willing to give up his power. And he didn't go to the cross because he was foolish. He went to the cross because he was wise. There's no way that we could be saved unless he went instead of us. And so John sees that vision. And what's the response to that vision? Well, as the, the as power is assumed, it says in verse 7, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And then in verse 8 it says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's saints. So the natural response of all of creation to seeing uh, the, the Lamb, not just as if he were slain, but actually receiving and assuming the throne from God, is worship. It's worship. And it's really hard not to go into the rest of the text because the rest of the text talks about how they worship and what they sing. They sing a new song. But in this one spot, I want to just focus on a couple things, is I want you to notice what the elders have in their hands. He says, The four elders fell down before the Lamb. Notice, maybe, maybe it would be easier to, to, to make the point to say what they're not holding in their hands. He doesn't say, The elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding an organ or each holding a piano, or each holding even drums. You see, it's interesting to me how when people talk about music in church, I mean, we've had pe people leave the church, frankly, because there's, we don't do 100% organ. And yet here, when you look at the great grand scheme of heaven, what is it that the elders are carrying with them? It's a harp, which in the Old Testament would have been the lyre. Now, is the organ an appropriate instrument for church? Absolutely. Is the piano? I wouldn't want to have church without one. What's the point here? Is that the, the instrument that they are holding is the instrument that would have been used in the temple in order to praise God, and it would have been lively, and it would have been joyful. In other words, the worship of the Lamb is a joyful experience. You know, over the, since we've been doing this series, I, they video the, the screen as I'm preaching. And before that, we often either they sweep the crowd or they sweep the choir. And you know what? Presbyterians don't smile very much when they sing. That struck me. Part of it is just who we are. Part of it, though, is I wonder if we really get it. Because the closer you are to the throne, the more you are, you are understanding the gospel, how could you not be excited? 
I mean, I think I've told you this, this story before. I was having a meeting when I, when I was on staff. It was about 20 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, with a group of charismatic pastors who had come to understand Reformed theology, what we believe. And they were meeting with a bunch of Presbyterian pastors. And the, the subject of dancing came up. And one of the Presbyterian pastors said, you guys, you guys let people dance in worship? And I'll never forget, the guy's name was Danny. He says, given what you know, how could you not? How could you not? How could you be so downcast all the time? And partly, I think it's because we don't really have a vision of Jesus and what he's done for us. We don't really understand the gospel. We don't really understand that Jesus went to the cross because of us and for us, but mainly he went instead of us. And because he did that and ascended to the throne, what else do I have to do in life but worship and be thankful? And instead we get so caught up in every other issue of our life. You see, the point here is not what the appropriate instrument is. The point here is how worship should be. And, you know, some churches might sing only psalms, but the question is, is it coming from your heart and is it driven by joy? You need to ask yourself that. The next thing you see is he said there's golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's saints. You know, as much as I can tell, the bowl, the, this comes as an image from the Old Testament where people would offer incense to the Lord. But there never really is, is any kind of salvation attached to the incense that I can see. The reason that incense is offered is because it's pleasing to the Lord. It's a smell that he enjoys. And what we find in the book of Revelation, he says the Lord still enjoys incense, but it, the, what the elders hold is golden bowls full of incense, and the incense is the prayers of the saints. Now the question is, if the, incense, if the smell of incense is what pleases God, and the prayers of the saints now is what pleases God, I don't mean please him in order to be saved. I mean, just make him sort of put a smile on his face. How happy is God? You know, my family will tell you, I think it's a gift. I'm sure they, they think it's a curse. I have a number of, of things that some people label disorders. I, again, I think they're superpowers. All of them have to do with sensory perception, most of them. And one of the things that I'm able to do that most people aren't is smell just about anything, any place, any time, in any condition. Which is great. If the trustees can't find a gas leak, go get Tommy. But what that means for my family is almost every single bit of lotion, shampoo, soap, they bring to me and say, Dad, is this okay? Which I have all girls on top of that. And by the way, don't be fooled when something says it's unscented. Really, they just put a mask over the real scent. I can smell the scent underneath it. And so constantly, I'm stopped dead in my track. Who put lotion on? I can smell almost anything. You want to know what's beautiful? Is the, you know who's got a better super sniffer than I do? is God does. Because God's is gracious. You say, I'm, I'm always trying to avoid smells. God, on the other hand, it seems is always trying to find them. So what does that mean? What does it take for you to actually bring a smile to God's face? Pray. You feel like you're overwhelmed by, by your, your sins and your guilt? Pray. Say, God, help me. That is what pleases him. People are constantly asking, what, you know, what do we need to do to please the Lord? 
Do I need to be more obedient? Do I need to be this? Do I need to be that? You know, you should be all those things. But if you genuinely want to just put a smile on your father's face, depend on him. You know, those of you who've raised kids, those of you who, who have kids, the older your kids get, the, the more special it is, at least to me, when they come and actually ask you for something. Because as they get older, they sort of wean away, and wean away, wean away. But when they come to you and say, Dad, I need your help with this. Man, I can't wait. How much more God? How much more God the Father? Does he long for us to, to, to just burn some incense, if you will, to pray to him, to, to offer up... Not, not just praise, but our needs. You see, because what we see here is the prayers of God's people. In chapter 6, these aren't just um, praises. These are also petitions. In chapter 6, the prayers of God's people sound something like this. How long until you bring justice about on the earth? Those are pleasing to God as well. Think about that. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we continue in this text, uh, it feels a little bit abrupt, but I pray also you prepare our hearts uh, now and through the week to see uh, the culmination of this vision, the culmination of this worship service. I pray that you would make us worshipers because of our vision of the cross. I pray that you would make us prayers because of our vision of the cross. I pray that you would open our eyes to the gospel more and more every day. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen.